Good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, we're in chapter 30 of Genesis today. And before we pray, just in case there's anyone here who hasn't seen or who hasn't heard the story up to now, we'll just go back over the backstory real quick. Uh, I think the last time I was preaching here was around a month ago. I was preaching on chapter 28. And that's when uh, uh, Jacob was on the run from home. He had sort of got in his brother's bad books. He had misled the brother and the father into giving him the birthright and the blessing that goes for the elder son. Uh, the brother, naturally enough, Esau, was really cheesed off. He had murderous intent, so daddy told Jacob, you better go on the run, go back up to Haram, up to my family's place, and while you're there, uh, get yourself a wife. So... Uh, Jacob has a really interesting meeting with God on the way. We saw that in chapter 28 with the stairway leading up and down to heaven. And anyways, he ends up at his uncle's house shortly afterwards, Uncle Laban, who's a kind of a slippery old schemer. And he decides to give Jacob, for the next 14, 20 years, a bit of his own medicine back. And that's where we pick up the story today. After 14 years of working for his uncle Laban, uh, Jacob gets this notion, you know what, it's about time for me to head home. I've got a couple of wives, I've got four wives actually, uh, a whole load of kids, and I just need to get back home. He was getting tired, I think, of hanging around with Laban's household. So we'll take up, or we'll pick up the story from there today. Let's pray first. <clears throat> Lord God, um, you are so unbelievably powerful and sovereign and smart. We don't have any concept of it. What little concept we have of it, Lord, you've given us. Uh, you've given us through revelation, through your Son, <clears throat> through your creation, through the Holy Spirit, testifying in our hearts that, that you love us. We just thank you that uh, this morning we can come to your word <clears throat> and see even more of you. Even this passage today, which is uh, cryptic and veiled in all kinds of things that, to be honest, which I don't think many of us understand, even the commentators. But still, Lord, we, we search and we explore for you today in today's text uh, to see your goodness at work in Jacob and thus in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Uh, amen. So um, the first thing I'm going to ask you today, and I want you to let this kind of um, introductory couple of questions kind of... <coughs> hang there is, you know, there's many different people in this room. Uh, many of us are Christians, but still many of us <clears throat> come to make decisions in many different ways. We have many different ways of making decisions, and, and that in part is because of the type of characters we are. Some people are, are really analytical people, and no matter what kind of decision, you know, all big decisions, they sit down, they're patient, they look at the pros and the cons, they'll weigh one side against the other and they'll make what they think is a wise decision. And, and this often is a pretty good approach to decision-making, and it often works. It won't work every time, of course. Uh, some people then are, are a bit more daring, aren't they? They like to gamble a bit in life. Um, so when they come up with a big decision to make in their lives, they sometimes might go at it a little bit too brash. They're a little bit too courageous. They're not as calculated and as cold as maybe the analytical type. And when it does go wrong, 
they sort of block those kind of ideas out of their heads. They're super confident in their own ability and they'll say to themselves, well, if it goes wrong, I'm going to take care of it. I'm able. I've done it before. Um, not a good sort of way to go about a decision, but still there's some admir admirable traits in that sort of person, you know. We, we need courageous people. We need sort of gamblers in life. It would be a very mundane place if everyone was super analytical. And then you have the third type, and we, they might be kind of spontaneous types. They don't kind of think at all about it. They're not even courageous about it. They just go on the whim of the moment. And they, they absolutely don't want to think of any sort of repercussions if the decision is wrong. They, their motto is, whatever, yadi da, I've done it, it's, it's over and done with. It'll be grand, the Irish might say. Not a good way to make decisions. So keep this thought in mind, because this man that we're looking at today, Jacob, is having to make a couple of really important decisions at this juncture in his life. In the introductory remarks there, I told you that he's on his way home. He has to make a decision, is it the right time to go home, or is it not the right time to go home? Should I go home or should I not go home? He has many other decisions as well in this passage to make, which we look at now. But anyways, this morning's passage begins with Rachel bearing him a son. At long last, Rachel, who hasn't born a son, bears Joseph. As soon, the text says, as Rachel had born Joseph, uh, he said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own house and my own country. It's interesting, isn't it, that Abraham and Isaac are sojourners in the land of promise, aren't they? And Jacob says, I want to go back to my own country. Hang on to that thought. So he reminds Laban, that old schemer, that he's been working hard for him now for 14 years, seven years for Leah and seven years for Rachel. And he's now asking more or less that Laban keep his side of the agreement and give him his wife and his kids Fair enough, you might think, but this is Laban we're dealing with here. He's not happy. <laughs> I think Laban might be the type, he's never happy. He's always trying to get the angle here. Uh, straight off, he tells Jacob that he's learned in verse 3 by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. You know, Laban has been in the company of Jacob for 14 years now. Jacob has been fair with him. Jacob has worked hard for him. He would surely have seen the blessing that Jacob's God, Yahweh, had on Jacob and indeed on the whole household of Laban as Jacob sojourned there for that period of time. But he's one of these sort of guys, he just doesn't get it. Laban just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it that God is real, alive, and with Jacob. He goes to the occult, and he consults the occult, and he finds out, yeah, it's because of your God that you've been blessing me, that I've been blessed. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> He's been living with him for 14 years. He's surely heard of the God by now. He consults a medium, or he learns through divination that the Lord has blessed him because of, of Jacob. Because up to then, Jacob's, up to Jacob's arrival, he just had a small ragtag flog of goat, sheep, and cattle, probably. But now as we see that in verse 30 there, the flock has increased abundantly. He's seen the great blessing that Jacob's God has brought to his house, yet he doesn't quite believe his eyes. He consults divination for confirmation. He just doesn't get it. The type of guy that Jacob has been living with for the last 14 years. Must have been tough on Jacob. He's shrewd. 
straight off the bat, he realizes, if this man leaves, if Jacob leaves, I'm going to lose my best resource. The ability to make me cash, moolah, is gone once that guy goes out the front door of my tent. So straight away, he tries to convince Jacob to stay for another while. He says, name your wages, and I'll give it. <laughs> We've heard that before from Laban, haven't we? Name your wages, and I'll give it. He did, and straight away, Laban tried to work the head on him. He didn't really want to give him the wages. He worked the head on him. Same thing here again. You would think that Jacob's little alarm bells would start ringing now, and he'd start feeling a bit guarded and maybe do the opposite of what Laban was suggesting, but no. He says, what will I give you? Now, what would you do if you were in Jacob's shoes? You have four wives. You have at least 12, 13 kids, 12 kids probably at this stage. You have 600 miles of a journey to go back home. You have a brother who's going to be pretty cheesed off if he does meet you on the way. You have no money. You have no resources. And you're being given this offer by the old schemer Laban to stay on and make some money. You need the cash. What would you do? Now, most people would say, you know what? I think I'll stay for a while and try and make good some of my losses. I've been working 14 years for nothing. Okay, I've got two beautiful wives. I've got many children. I've been blessed. But I have no money. And I have a big mob to bring back to my father's place. I need the cash. I need resources. But oddly, in verse 31, look, look what he says. You shall not give me anything. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, come on, Jacob. Now's your chance. Go on. Get some money, some resources. But Jacob has a proposal instead. Verse 32 and 33, let's read them. He says, let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. What does Laman say? Good. <laughs> Good, he says, let it be as you have said. No wonder Laban said good. Do you see what's happening here? Laban was probably saying, man, this is like stealing candy from a kid. This is a good deal for me. Because this particular proposal that Jacob came up with put severe limitations on his ability to make any sort of money or any sort of profit from his proposed couple of years or however many years of, of animal husbandry taking care of Laban's flocks. And as well as that, Laban was delighted because it would be impossible for him to cheat. So we see here, in those days uh, out there in the Middle East or the Near East, most of the flocks of sheep would have been white, if not all. White was the predominant color. And most of the flocks of the goats would have been uh, black. Now, the King James Version also throws in cattle as well, brown cattle, but the ESV doesn't have that, so I'll, I'll, um, I'll ignore those for the time. But there was probably cattle in the deal here as well. But the ESV just zones in on the goats and on the sheep. So because there had been so little speckled or striped sheep uh, and goats, and particularly black lambs or black sheep, 
they would have been more valuable, wouldn't they? There was less of them. So obviously not, uh, prices would be high. Even today, you can get a better price for black wool than white wool. Sheep are still predominantly white today. Likewise, his goats would, in the majority, be speckled or striped, just like the sheep, probably. Um, the goats would have been uh, white. Uh, so what Jacob proposes is that all these common animals, our own common animals, be moved away from Laban's flock, and that the remaining flock of Laban would be monochrome animals, would be the common ones. They'd be blacks or whites. So I don't know what the breakdown would be. There's probably maybe some geneticist here who can work it out. Um, it's all to do with recessive and dominant genes, but let's say they'd be for every hundred solid colors of Laban's flock, they'd probably maybe be two, three, or four speckled. So you just get the picture. There was a lot more solid colored animals than speckled. So Jacob is proposing that his earnings or his wages would be from the speckled animals. So Laban was saying, man, I'm going to get some cheap labor for a number of years now. This guy's going to take care of my flock. And his payment is only the speckled animals, the non-solid colored animals. That's a good deal for me, and it was. And then what Jacob proposed was that these more valuable animals, the speckled ones, be separated from the main flock. Now, whether Jacob was going to mark them as separate and just not touch them, and breed from the remaining solid colors, we're not sure. But anyways, just to make sure, to be sure, what Laban did with these speckled mini flock, which Jacob took out, was he took them away. He said to the young lads, look, take these speckled goats, these valuable goats and these black sheep, take them away, put them somewhere else where, Laban, or where Jacob can't find them, can't get at them, make sure there's no chance that he can sneak into them and bring them back and get them involved in his breeding program. So that's the picture. Sounds like a bad deal for him. Imagine him coming home that evening and telling his family of the deal that he just struck up. Imagine telling Rachel. She was a shepherdess. There must have been a bit of tension in the house there. And Laban knew well as well that he was having a good deal. So then Jacob sets to to managing the main flock of Laban. Now granted, most of us in this room are probably not shepherds, never have been shepherds. I don't know, maybe someone has been a shepherd. But even now, his methods do seem a bit weird to us. And we're going to read the next couple of verses. I'm going to read for the NET, from the New English Translation, because I found it a bit more helpful than my own ESV. This is, what, or this is how the ESV reads. <clears throat> but Jacob took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees. Now, plane trees would be our shechemore or our chestnut trees. He made white streaks by peeling them making the white inner wood and the branches visible. Then he set up the peeled branches in all the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink. And he set up the branches in front of the flocks when they were in heat and came to drink. When the sheep mated in front of the branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. Jacob removed these lambs, but he made the rest of the flock face the streaked and completely dark-colored animals in Laban's flock. So he made separate flocks for himself, and he didn't mix them then with Laban's flocks. When the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would set up the branches in the troughs in front of the flock so that they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weaker, he did not set the branches there. So the weaker animals 
ended up belonging to Laban and the stronger animals to Jacob. Now, many critics of the Bible point out when they read passages like this that this is nothing more than fertility magic and folk stories of old. Now, verse, these verses are hard to understand, I admit, and after going through a good few commentaries, I, I still must admit I don't quite understand myself what's going on, and there's quite a bit of toing and froing among the commentators as to what's going on here, but we can make at least a couple of observations. First of all, the providence of God is definitely at play in these events. There's no doubt about that. Because we can get a clue of that in the next chapter, chapter 31, if you want to skip forward to it and look at verse 10 to 12. And that reads, uh, you see, Jacob had a vision or a dream in which God spoke to him. And this is what, uh, this is what we learn from it. In the breeding season of the flock, this is God speaking to Laban or to uh, Jacob. In the breeding season of the flock, <clears throat> I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am, and he said, lift up your eyes and see, all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Now, it looks like God was communicating with Jacob in dreams and blessing Jacob's selection of the animals in his breeding program. Now, let's, for, let's not forget that <clears throat> um, speckled and striped animals don't occur in a vacuum. That amongst the solid colored animals of Jacob, there is all the genetic information for solids and for outliers for recessive ones, striped and uh, spotted. But it's just recessive, it's backed off, it's not as strong, it's a solid colors. So even though the, the speckles had been separated from the flock, there was still the genetic information in the blacks and the whites to give speckles, do you understand? So that's why it's still possible to have speckles even from solids. I mean, we still see it today, we can have, uh, there are cases where um, there has been a, a marriage between two black people and you can have a white offspring. Or uh, blue eyes between dark-eyed uh, parents. So there's all kinds of genetic information built into our genome that is recessive and dormant and can be for many generations but pops out now and again. But with farm animal husbandry, it's much more common and good shrewd farmers will know, and I have a good friend who is just an absolute genius at, at breeding, and he knows which bull, and he knows the traits of that bull, will go with what cow. And he can pick uh, he can pick the right bull for the right cow. He has a talent for that, to gain an animal that will be of superior uh, weight and looks. And he sells off the calves then at great price to other farming friends. But they don't have that talent. And even though they have a stock, they can't come up with the same superb animals that my friend does. So there's a lot of stuff going on in here. God is communing or com communicating with Jacob giving him the inside line, perhaps, on which beasts to, to select. Perhaps not. Perhaps Jacob himself has just an extremely good eye because he knew a lot more about shepherding than Laban certainly did. But God is in some way, perhaps, revealing to Jacob which animals has these recessive genes. And then Jacob is taking advantage of that. Secondly, we have to think that Jacob is an elderly man by now. He's probably about 100. 
He's seen a lot of sheep and goats. He's probably very intelligent in the ways of farming. He's been, since a lad, probably farming on his own friend, on his own father's farm, and he's been at least 14 years working with Laban. So he has an awful lot of knowledge of animal husbandry. That is a huge plus. Thirdly, and this is interesting, he seems to have a certain understanding of the medicinal benefits which breeding and pregnant animals can gain from plants. Now, I did a bit of reading on this, and it was fascinating, but I quickly started getting in over my depth, and I didn't quite understand what these uh, articles were, were saying. But there's an awful lot of testing going on nowadays between uh, about uh, the benefits, the chemical benefits there are in plants, and how that benefits pregnant animals, and indeed pregnant people. And seemingly, the tannins are released, the tannins in the plants are released when you cut stripes in them, revealing the sort of the sap, maybe. And when these are placed in, in the trucks where the sheep and the goats were breeding, and they release their chemicals into the water, which the animals, uh, the pregnant animals, or the animals um, that Jacob wanted to breed, would be drinking, and this would give, and it's remarkable, these, some of these journals actually give quite remarkable um, information, or quite remarkable, remarkable statistics in how it benefits pregnant animals. Um, the almond tree in particular has a lot of medicinal um, advantages. So whether God was telling Jacob this, or whether this is some sort of information that's gone out of knowledge, we don't know. But again, God's providence was probably involved there, along with Jacob's intelligence. Now, I used to read these verses for years and came to the conclusion that it was just the sheep and the goats looking at the sticks, because Jacob had cut little speckles in the sticks, that somehow they were kind of magicking up speckled and striped sheep. And I just used to leave it at that and just say, oh, that's what it seems to be telling me. That's probably what it means. I just don't understand that God had something to do with it. Now, that particular reading is quite unfortunate because it harks back to an old uh, superstition of old, which people thought that if a pregnant ewe or a pregnant sheep were looking towards or at something, at the speckled or the striped sticks, that they would be most likely to give rise to speckled offspring. It's a bit like today when uh, women are pregnant and they, like, they might think, well, you know what, I wouldn't mind if my child had an instant music and they play classical music to the child in their womb. And there is evidence that that seems to benefit or that seems to spur on musical instruments in children or artistic instruments in children later on in life. Whether that's what it's at play here, but certainly there was nothing, this prenatal visual influence is, um, is not what's involved here. It's not the looking at the sticks. Um, it's not by looking at the sticks that the goats and the sheep were giving rise. I hope I'm not boring you. I, I feel I'm going on a bit. <laughs> I, I knew I'd get caught up in this. But anyways, um, God's providence is at play here. Uh, Jacob is obviously trusting God in what he's doing. And we'll look, at this, we'll look into this later on. But having read this Old, Testa Old Testament narrative, how, how can we apply this to our lives? We, we're not going to, certainly I'm not advising anyone to go out and buy some sheep and goats and try this out. I don't think that's, that, that's really what, what my intentions are. But what's the big picture? What's going on here? Well, I think, especially over all our preaching over the last couple of months on these themes, the big theme here is that uh, God's sovereignty. God is in charge of his redemption plan. 
which, which Jason touched on today, isn't it? That the, the creation is growing. The creation needs to be redeemed. We need redemption. And God is kick-started that plan in with Eve. And this is what is happening. And this is the main theme, I think, that's happening here. That um, Eve would bring forth this offspring that would redeem sinners and renew the groaning creation. Nothing will stop God's plan of redemption. Pharaoh won't stop it. No Canaanite will stop it. Esau won't stop it. And no Laban will stop it. The promises made to Jacob are made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You know, the very promise that includes us today cannot be stopped or cannot be thwarted in any way because God is sovereign and he keeps his word. But you know what? God carries on his plan through us and we're fallible. We're just like Abraham. We're just like Isaac and Jacob. We're fallible people. And he carries out his plan through us, through the myriad of decisions that we make in our daily lives as we kind of stumble through life. God works with us and he works through us. And so I think what I gleaned from this particular passage anyways, or how I think we might be able to apply it, is that we should approach our decision-making in life with this grand picture in view, that we're part of God's renewing project, and that this renewal project should be behind us like a big tapestry that we can turn around and look at and remind ourselves of it as we go through life and make decisions, be they small or big. Now, Jacob had, if you've picked it up here, he had a number of decisions to make here. Would he return home? Would he take up Laban's offer of hanging on with him and that he'd be paid? And no doubt he had a myriad of decisions to make regarding his animal breeding program. How did he approach decision-making? Can you see anything or can you gleam anything from the text here? How should we as Christians approach decision-making? Now, it's interesting, as I was studying this particular text, the shenanigans that went on in Jacob's life up to now was sort of coloring my image of Jacob. Um, but I hope, and I'm not wrong, that I, I learned something marvelous about Jacob, I think, in this particular passage. And that is that he was a man of great faith. And it's not outwardly obvious. But hark back again to verse 31. What does he say to Laban there? He says, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Does he remind you of anyone else in the family? Remember Abraham said the same thing to the king of Sodom. Remember that? When the king of Sodom came out to greet him after he defeated the five kings, he said... I have lifted up my hand, Abraham said to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I think Jacob didn't want a godless, selfish schemer like Laban to be associated with any blessing he had. And thus, in a remarkable act of faith he left his financial destiny in God's hands and, and not alone that deliberately put himself at a handicap by insisting on the speckled and the spotted animals as payment 
I mean, Jacob was a shrewd operator himself. There's no other reason why he'd make an offer or a proposal like that. He knew that God would move. You see, Jacob is relying on God's promise and faithfulness to him to bring about circumstances that he can benefit from in his deal and his dealings with Laban, despite the handicap that he's put on himself. After all, if you go back to chapter 28 again, Jacob is probably thinking of this line, of this promise that God made him. Lord, he's probably saying, Lord, you promised to take care of me. I have a large family. There's no way of supporting them. Please help me now, because I'm going to commit myself to you. Now, we can learn a lot from this posture of faith by Jacob, because as Christians, our best decisions are committed to God. We should commit, or try to commit at least, our decisions to God on a daily basis. And should we struggle to make a decision, we can always ask him for help. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. Another way maybe that we can, as Christians, make godly decisions is, our decision-making should always reflect our values. Think of every decision as something which must either glorify God which should glorify God and grow me in faith. Now, I don't mean every tiny, tiny decision like should I have buffalo wings or chowder for my lunch, but think of it this way. Decisions that you might think, well, that's kind of separate a bit from the church, isn't it? Like, what kind of entertainment will I look at or listen to? How will I spend my money? How will I invest my money? Who do I hang out with? Always try and make your decisions with that tapestry of God's redemption plan in the back of your mind. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all its innumerable decisions, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature simply by the decisions that you make. A third way to approach good Christian decision-making is to seek counsel from others. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. I think if we're honest, all of us have done and made rash decisions and big decisions without consulting anyone. And I think, speaking from experience, one of the reasons myself why I do them without consulting anyone is because I'm afraid that someone will convince me that it's a stupid decision or maybe not a godly decision. So I won't seek consultation. It's human nature, isn't it? We can be really stubborn. But you know, God, even in his providence, can turn bad decisions uh, into, I won't say good decisions, but he can work them out for his own cause. We've seen this so many times in the Bible. He can turn these bad decisions into opportunities to glorify him. Not that that's kind of to make an encouragement out of us taking foolish decisions. Fourthly, and this is important, your big decisions should be made prayerfully and patiently. 
Jacob, at the beginning of this passage, he had an important decision to make, whether to return home or not. He knew that in order to honor the covenant of God, he should probably return home to the promised land. After all, this was the land that God had promised to give him Isaac and Jacob. It was a right decision, but with Jacob at that time, it was the wrong time. God wanted him to bless him more by keeping him in strife and in trouble in Laban's house. And that's the way God works with us as well. Sometimes he allows us to simmer a little bit for our own benefit. Romans chapter 5 says, and this is an amazing verse, and we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So don't rush important decisions. Proverbs says, the simple believes everything but the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. If you have a big decision to make, sleep on it. God might have other plans for you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. What else can we do? You know, many of us in this room have made bad decisions, and I certainly am one of them. And one thing about making a bad decision is you're going to have to live with it. And we will have regrets. There's no doubt about that. And some of us might even think that we've kind of fallen out of God's perfect will by making bad decisions. Well, not so, because not alone is God the God of second chances. He's the God of zero chances. You might feel alone after making a bad decision, or you might feel alone after thinking back on bad decisions you have made and you have regrets. But remember, if you are in Christ, God is for you 100%. Remember the gospel. Remember, Christ is walking with you on your mistake-strewn path. Remember the gospel, that Christ bore your sin, your rebellion, your pride, your anger, your bitterness, your spirit of unforgiveness, your brash, foolish, selfish decisions. He bore all of those sins, whatever sins you have, whatever sins characterize you as a person, even as coming to Christ, perhaps baggage that you find difficult to throw off, he's covered them graciously in order to bring you to the Father, cleaned and righteous as innocent as one of Jacob's sheep. Let's pray. Father God, we are um, a people who are in debt to you and will be all our lives, and even when we are glorified, Lord, we will be singing with the saints and with the angels in heaven. Great is thy name. Great is thy salvation. And holy, holy, holy are you, Lord that you would stoop down and reach and do business with sinful creatures like us, taking our sin and giving us your righteousness in order to glorify yourself, to show that you're a God of love, that you're a God of life, and that from you life exudes, permeates out, radiates out, and anyone who comes in contact with you becomes like you. So Father, help us during the week, help us during our lives indeed, to keep this in the forefront of our mind, uh, that we are your servants walking for you, we are your ambassadors, and that it is good indeed that we should glorify you and point people to you. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.